Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the USDA is increasing monthly benefits to ensure low-income families have access to healthier food choices. And that means right here in Georgia, that's about a million Georgia households will receive extra help in covering food costs. Now, in a moment, I'll speak with John Anderson from the state's Division of Family and Children's Services. Plus, Georgia Tech sports historian Johnny Smith on the relationship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Now, those conversations are more in just a moment. But first, this President Joe Biden's recent vaccine mandates reportedly will affect 100 million. Listen to the voices of unvaccinated Americans who are lying in hospital beds, taking their final breath, saying, if only I'd gotten vaccinated, if only. It's a tragedy. Please don't let it become yours. But the Georgia Chamber of Commerce is issuing a response, and it's not exactly in support of the mandates. A statement from the Georgia Chamber of Commerce reads in part, quote, Each workplace is different and employers should continue to have the right to establish health care and vaccine policies that work for their businesses. The Georgia Chamber appreciates the extraordinary efforts of Georgia job creators to promote COVID-19 vaccines in ways that work for their employees, close quote. Now, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he will pursue every legal option to block what he called a, quote, blatant overreach by the Biden administration. Meanwhile, in related news, the city schools of Decatur, well, that district is expected to roll out COVID-19 vaccine requirements for staff and eligible students. Decatur plans to carve out exceptions for teachers and students who either can't or don't want to get the vaccine. Other districts, including Atlanta Public Schools, well, they're urging staff and students ages 12 and up to get vaccinated by offering shots for free on middle and high school campuses. Now, Clayton County has set up vaccination clinics at some schools for eligible students. Over in DeKalb County, they're going to use mobile vaccine clinics, and that will rotate through different schools to offer shots for students and staff. And Gwinnett vaccine clinics at various schools will be set up. And a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Speaking of education, finally, at this hour, there's a bit of a celebration taking place over at Agnes Scott College in Decatur. The institution has been named the most innovative liberal arts college in the country again. Of course, this is according to the annual rankings from U.S. News and World Report Best Colleges. President Leo Cadio Zach, well, when we spoke to her earlier, she was pretty excited about the ranking. Oftentimes people think of innovation in terms of technology, but innovation is thought. And we are thrilled that our award-winning pro experience summit is being recognized for global learning and leadership. And then we've continued to innovate on that so that we focus on professional success um, after students have graduated from Agnes Scott. 
Well, the private women's college was also recognized for social mobility, undergraduate teaching, and also placing first for its first-year experiences. Now, coming up, how those recent changes in federal food benefits will assist more than a million Georgia households. Closer Look continues in just a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Close Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. The name Mago McFiggin may not sound familiar, but she has a place in history. According to the United States government, McFiggin was an unemployed factory worker living in Rochester, New York. And in May of 1939, she used food stamps to buy butter, eggs, and prunes. Now, this food stamp program was experimental at the time, but desperately needed as the nation was still reeling from the Great Depression. Since 1939, the government subsidized food program has changed, but the mission is still the same, and that's to help Americans who are in need. It's estimated right now nearly 42 million people receive what's called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, better known as SNAP. And recently, the Biden administration has authorized another change in the monthly SNAP benefits. We'll talk about that in just a moment because I'm joined now by John Anderson. He's a chief deputy division director with the Division of Family and Children's Services. Director Anderson, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me today. Let's first begin with this, and that is for our audience, so they have a better understanding of those receiving SNAP benefits here in Georgia. Uh, these are we also often we hear these are low-income households, but also for folks who might be uh, disabled as well. That's exactly true. We have a lot of our SNAP families are working, uh, working families, and and they're disabled as well. Um, as you said before, we have about seven hundred and twenty-four thousand families that we're serving. Uh, currently across the state, which equates to about 1.2 million individuals um, within those families. So this this program is very helpful to families, and and uh, and I don't know how they would survive without it. Yeah, how to survive without it, Mr. Anderson? Let me ask you this: Since the pandemic, obviously last year, you all have seen an increase in those applying for the benefits, and also those who were eligible to receive it because of the whatever whatever the circumstances were due to the pandemic. That is exactly true. We've seen our applications. We, before the pandemic started, we were averaging about 10,000 applications a week uh, for our SNAP program. And right after the pandemic uh, hit and the the nation and Georgia shut down uh, to the shelter in place, we saw a a high spike of 51,000 applications in one week. Um, We kind of settled back down into uh, like that, that area after after the uh, the shelter in place was lifted to about 12 to 13 12 to 13,000 applications a week and then after um, the delta variant started coming around we saw yet another increase again and we've been averaging about 18 to 20,000 
uh, applications a week from families. So we know that the need is certainly out there and there's still people looking for help. Wow. I want to be clear so our audience understands that you went from typically what was traditionally maybe 10,000 applications a week to 51,000 during the height of the pandemic when we were all had That's to shelter correct. in place. And now that you're right. Correct. Wow. What does that say to you? Say that they need, there's a lot there's a lot of people that need help. That is for sure. There's people, you know, as we look across all the programs and, and what's going on with the economy, I think that, that there's a lot of um, of um, services that the SNAP program offers to families to be, fulfill their basic needs uh, for food. And how were you all able to accommodate that surge in terms of processing the applications? Your staff, obviously, I imagine, was working overtime. Were you able to hire more people? We know about the issues with the Georgia Department of Labor. Uh, did you uh, all have some of the same problems? We, uh, fortunately, it, we, we didn't have as many problems as some of the other agencies. We, we've had a great partnership with our federal, our federal agencies with the Food Nutrition Program, and they quickly offered us as many different administrative simplification options as they could offer us. You know, one such great one was for families that are on the food stamp program, we have to recertify or renew their benefits every six months. Mm -hmm. We were able to postpone all those um, renewals and recertifications until we could get past the surge. So that that relieved the burden and let us focus on letting those families that were receiving the SNAP program uh, continue to receive uninterrupted and then those families that were newly needing the program it allowed us to focus our attention just on on those families, and so that those been those uh, processes expired in June of of, um, of last year. We were able to kind of get stabilized again, and then since then, um, with the current surge, you know, the the federal partners and our food nutrition uh, services has allowed the state to go back and recertify to push off some recertification to the family has has already been interviewed. Uh, like the last time we saw them, we talked to them and went through their application with them with the recertification. They've allowed us to extend those renewals again so that we can, again, turn our focus back towards helping families that are newly requesting assistance. And Mr. Anderson, uh, typically, what is the process time for someone at first applying for benefits? Um, and do you all have a backlog or you, you still feel like you all are able to process those at the same at the same speedient that you were before? We're still uh, I wouldn't say that we have a large backlog and we have, um, again, Sending you know some of our our recertifications off. We just completed that just uh, the weekend before last, so we're continuing to to do that to reduce that part of the workload. We've also um, asked our federal partners to to let us to use some of our quality uh, assurance staff and things that we were working on with them to give them some data on case reading, uh, you know, those types of um, administrative oversight. To let us pause those for a few months so we can take those staff who also know how to process food stamp applications and put those those people back on uh, applications as well. So we, and we continue to hire, you know, as we go along too, but, um, but we're using, utilizing every staff that we have uh, to be able to process these applications so that these families don't have to wait for benefits. And Mr. Anderson, you all also, in terms of the SNAP recipients, Georgia, and I guess like imagine many other states, you all have a certain percentage of older individuals who also receive these SNAP benefits, correct? That's correct. Right. We do have that. And we also have in Georgia, uh, we have a, a waiver program called the Senior SNAP Program. So those individuals that are in households, everybody's over age 65 or everybody's disabled, um, we can run them through simplified processes and help them get the maximum of the benefits that they 
that they can get through that that piece of it, uh, that particular waiver program. Um, if they have somebody in the household that lives with them, it's not elderly or disabled, they go through the regular food stamp processes. And how often are there changes? I, I believe the, I read that the last time there was a, an increase or a change in the actual SNAP benefits, it was 2006? Well, the, the, the changes occur every year, mm-hmm. right around in October, effective October 1st, which is the, federal, the first part of the uh, federal fiscal year. So th- there's not been any major changes recently, mm-hmm. uh, not like the one that we just saw um, the, in the last few weeks where we're increasing the maximum benefit. I mean, the uh, yeah, the maximum benefit amounts for individuals um, by another 40, excuse, 25% in benefits. Uh, we were able to process that all on our computer system this weekend, so effective October 1st. All the families that are receiving food stamps and those newly eligible uh, families will be able to receive those enhanced benefits without having to do anything extra uh, to get those benefits. We process those all uh, in the computer system this weekend. Mr. Anderson, that 25% increase comes out to about $36 or just under $37 extra? That's correct. Yep. And, that and, is correct. And through your lens, so on the average then, how? what's the average? Is it the same amount for every household or does it vary based on the circumstances? What, it's what's a percentage. Yeah, it's a percentage. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, no, but it fine. is a percentage based on the uh, the household size. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like for a, a family household size of four, you know, was, was receiving $680 a month. That's a maximum benefit amount. Uh, and with the new benefit allotments for next year, it went from uh, 680 to $835. Mm-hmm. So that was an increase of, um, you know, of, of $53 uh, between the two. And for those folks that may not be familiar how this works, and it used to be back in the day, I know that there was the actual food stamps that people use. Right. But now, obviously, that's that's changed. And there is actually like a debit card. Is that correct? That is correct. And, you know, I was a food stamp case manager back in those days when, we, you know, we issued out those actual cards and people would take those those uh, cards and get them, um, you know, hole punched at the um, at the local grocery stores. And so the EBT program uh, came about um, several years after I started as a case manager. And one of the really wonderful things that's happened, you know, with this with this pandemic, if we can say something wonderful has happened is that we've been able to um, take the food stamp program and put on put uh, make it available for online purchasing. Uh, previous to that, there was a couple of, of states that had a pilot where they could do online purchasing, but now we are now up to eight retailers hmm. um, that allow online purchasing for SNAP recipients, which includes home delivery. And Director Anson, there was a time when, and correct me if I'm wrong, you individuals could not use their SNAP benefits to, to purchase hot foods from, from grocery stores or, or something like that. Has that changed at all, or is that still the case? That's still the case. Uh, the hot food waiver program generally associated with, uh, like, a natural disaster mm-hmm. in some area where there's been major disruptions in um, power supplies. And so people, you know, they could not, could they may not have a place to store their food and keep it fresh. They may not have a place to um, uh, heat the food and warm up the foods. That's not the, been the situation, fortunately, in Georgia. We haven't had major power outages or infrastructure issues like they've had in other states. So, so we're continuing to not offer a hot food waiver uh, at this point, but the, we don't meet the criteria for that. But if there was, would that have to be through executive order through the governor's office? No, uh, those are determined based on the conditions in the local communities. And we work with our federal partners to explain what's going on in the communities. And there's some criteria that they go through. Uh, that looks at the, the you know power outages or, or infrastructure 
uh, infrastructure damages that, that would justify that. If you just joined us, I'm joined by John Anderson. He's the Chief Deputy Division Director with the Division of Family and Children's Services. And we're talking about the recent changes authorized by the Biden administration in the monthly SNAP benefits. And Director Anderson, from what I understand also, too, there was some sort of reevaluation in terms of looking at just how how folks receiving these benefits, looking at the types of food they were able to buy and have access to, and in terms of the dietary guidelines for Americans, that's a big part of this increase as well. It is. And, you know, we want uh, everybody to understand that the, the Supplemental Food uh, Nutrition uh, Food Assistance Program is, is, is exactly that. It's supplement somebody's income for their, for their food uh, supplies. So we do a lot of uh, work with at the, you know, with the USDA to make sure that, that we are, are making available the, the types of food that need to be available for uh, families and individuals. So they still can purchase food items, but they're not able to purchase non-food items like toiletries and soap and, you know, those types of things. It's all, all directly related to food. And you all also have a partnership, correct me if I'm wrong, with some of the farmers markets as well. We do, yeah. That we, we work with the farmers markets and it's a great partnership with them when those programs are running because those Farmers markets are able to offer uh, more food at a lower cost uh, for our SNAP recipients, and we're very appreciative of all the, the farmers markets that participate in the program. Director Anderson, when you think about the fact that we are still in this pandemic and it's not clear when we're going to be on the other side of this, and I know, like many agencies, funding is so important. You all feel like you're getting enough federal support also in a extra federal support in case we see another surge and folks maybe, you know, not going to work, losing their jobs, what have you, and being able to support, again, another surge. And you went from 10,000 to 51,000 applicants in a week. If that happens mm-hmm. again. Yeah, I believe that our federal partners are, are more than willing to help us. They did, you know, part of the, the last COVID Relief Act, they did give states some some money directly, the federal money to handle these types of situations and to, to look ahead to the future. How can we put some processes or technology in place to handle these types of surges uh, for, for uh, the workforce and for our customers? So we're looking at all those different offerings right now to see what all we can do in the next couple of years to um, to get that those processes in place before that funding runs out. Speaking of funding, agency department heads and, and directors like yourself will always tell me, you know, there's always room for more. Um, when you look at Georgia overall, and the, from the poverty rate into those households and those individuals receiving SNAP benefits, is there an, a partnership or an aspect that's missing or something that's missing that you would like to see implemented in this program? Well, I think that we, you know, we, we do a pretty good job in Georgia. We've had a, um, we've had a really good, successful partnership with our, uh, we have a SNAP, uh, a SNAP work group and we work through community partners and our food banks. And they help us with taking applications and answering questions for customers uh, as well. I think that, they, that we do a good job with that. I think that you know where we, where we run into struggles sometimes is attracting enough people to come in and, and do the food stamp program for us uh, overall to make sure that we've got enough people to, to help with the, you know with the, with the application surges and processing applications as we go through. Uh, again, we handle that you know right now the surges with redirecting staff that are currently are not. Uh, working on the food stamp program directly in the sense of processing applications, but they know how to do it. They've done it in fast, and their and their skills are still sharp enough for us to be able to call on those individuals. Well, and given that for so many Georgians, uh, access to the internet is is 
challenging, whether it's because there it could be rural where they just don't have access or the access is a little, as they say, spotty, or even just with the cost involved with that. How are you all able to reach those people and get well, them that signed is, up? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that we did early on um, is that we opened up our telephonic application and renewal processes. So families that don't have access to the Internet, they can get to a phone and call us. You know, we've got folks that, that just help them all day long with filing applications so the family doesn't have to actually get to a computer. We'll talk to them, we'll file their application for them, and then get them over to somebody who can process their application. Um, prior to the pandemic, we were probably getting 20 to 30 applications like that a day. Mm -hmm. And in the height of the pandemic, we would get eight, 900 uh, a day. And now we've kind of gone back down to between three and 400 a day on telephonic applications. But we try to make it as easy as possible uh, for those families that can't you know, either uh, get to us by phone or by internet. We also have our, um, our paper applications available for people that want us to mail an application. So many times in this program, Mr. Anson, we've talked about uh, the, the changing face of poverty. It's not who people might imagine. Listen, when folks are in need and the resources are there, they may not know. What do you want folks to, to know about this program and SNAP benefits? And also, you know, maybe if there is a stigma tied to it, what do you want them to know about what you all are here for in terms of being able to provide these SNAP benefits? Well, we're here to help. I mean, that's what DFAX is here. We're here to help the families with, with SNAP. We also process Medicaid applications and temporary assistance for needy families. All those are available online or they're available telephonically or on paper, whatever the families can do. I think what would help us the most uh, if, when families are filling out applications is to complete as much of the application online as they possibly can and at the end of the application, they'll get a transaction number and the ability to upload any documents. So if they have any income or resources, go ahead and upload those documents for us. That speeds the case manager up whenever they get to the application. We can process the applications much faster if we have everything we need when, we, when we're talking to them. John Anderson is the Chief Deputy Division Director with the Division of Family and Children's Services, and we were talking about the Biden administration authorizing another change in the monthly SNAP benefits. Now, this will take effect when? Director Anderson? October 1st. They'll begin benefits in, beginning in October. And if anyone wants more information about the SNAP benefits, where can they go? They, they can come to our website, uh, you know, the, the dhs.ga.gov, and look for the food stamp program. And uh, it explains everything that we have going on with food stamp, how to apply, what to expect. And um, certainly help everybody as much as we possibly can. All right. John Anderson, Chief Deputy Division Director with the Division of Family and Children's Services. We'll also have a link on our website. What website? Director Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. And I'm choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. A reminder to join Public Broadcast in Atlanta and me tonight at 6 p.m. for Athletes and Activism, Muhammad Ali's Legacy. Now, there's still time to register for this free virtual event because free is always good, right? Just go to WABE.org slash Ali PBS. Speaking of Ali, February 25th, 1964. Where were you? Well, I was nowhere. It happened. 22-year-old Cassius Clay becomes the heavyweight champion of the world by defeating Sonny Liston. Ali made a pre-fight prediction he would be victorious and a post-fight declaration that a new type of champ had arrived. 
I don't have a mark on my face. Yeah. And I upset something listen, and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. Right. I told the world I talked to God every day. If God's with me, can't nobody be against me, Sonny. I shook up the world. Brother, I know God. I know the real God. Cassius, wait a minute, wait a minute. Eh, he's a bad man. But then soon afterwards, Cassius Clay changed his name and became a member of the Nation of Islam. Why do you insist on being called Muhammad Ali now? That's the name given to me by my leading teacher, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. That's my original name. That's a black man named Cassius Clay was my slave name. I'm no longer a slave. What does it mean? Muhammad means worthy of all praises and Ali means most high. Do you intend to fight under that name? Yes, sir. I want to be called by that name. I write autographs of that name. I want to be known all over the world as that name. And during this time, a prominent face, of course, of the Nation of Islam was Malcolm X. The two would become friends, but the friendship between the two would be brief. Malcolm X was assassinated February 21st, 1965, in New York City inside the Audubon Ballroom. Well, Georgia Tech professor and sports historian Johnny Smith, along with Randy Roberts of Purdue University, co-authored a book back in 2016, Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And it's also the basis of a new documentary. So ahead of our event tonight and what will be soon, a new four-part PBS documentary by Ken Burns. Joining me now is Professor Johnny Smith. Welcome. Thank you for having me. When Muhammad Ali said he was the greatest then at 22 years old, he meant it, right? <laughs> he did, but not everybody believed him before he beat Sonny Liston. I mean, no boxing writer thought he had a chance of defeating Liston. In the last two fights for Sonny Liston, he had destroyed Floyd Patterson mm-hmm. within 90 seconds in both of those matches. You know, Liston was a bruiser maybe the hardest hitting heavyweight boxer up until that time. And people were afraid of Liston. Cassius Clay was afraid of Liston. Um, Robert Lipsight, the great New York Times columnist, tells a story of how when he was getting ready to go to Miami to cover the fight, his editor told him to cover the fight from the hospital because that's where you'll find Cassius Clay when it's all over. Let's talk about Muhammad Ali's boxing style for a moment, because I think now, Professor Smith, it kind of gets lost because of everything else. He was bigger than life outside of the ring. But I always like to talk about his boxing style. Make no mistake about it now. Muhammad Ali could punch, but he also had technique. Tell the audience about it. You know, what was unique about Ali was his quickness. I mean, he was explosive. He had an ability to evade punches. I mean, he could take a punch, but he had a unique ability to evade punches. And that's something that helped him in a, as an advantage against Liston, his ability to, to wear out Liston. And by the sixth round in that fight, Liston, who was cut above his eye, a bum shoulder, you know, he couldn't keep up with this incredible athlete in Cassius Clay. Now, Clay was also criticized by a lot of quote-unquote boxing experts in the sporting press because he held his hands low. Mm -hmm. You know, the traditional teaching is that you defend yourself by keeping your hands up high, protect your face. That's rule number one. But he didn't do that. And it's it's interesting because Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, he also had a style where he kept his hands low. Mm -hmm. And when Johnson was a heavyweight champion, you know, racist white writers would stereotype him and say that that was a sign of his laziness. When of course, that wasn't the case at all. But it was a kind of style that Jack Johnson had developed where he was constantly anticipating and thinking. And it was the intellect that we shouldn't overlook with both fighters, the intellect of Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and how he was trying to anticipate 
what you were going to do next to take advantage of any opening that he saw when you were trying to land a punch on him. We should also note, too, for those who are big boxing fans, and I, I'll tell you, I grew up a big boxing fan. I used to watch it on Saturday afternoons on ABC or NBC. Noted that Sonny Liston was very flat-footed, and correct me if I'm wrong, and Ali danced a lot, heel to toe. Right. Able to sort of, you know, throw Sonny Liston off. And that was something different, too, that folks had not seen. Yeah, I think the writers, the consensus was that Liston would nail Clay early and wear him out. You know, they, they didn't really, res- the writers didn't really respect Clay as a puncher yet. Now, he'll prove them wrong, but we have to remember that going into that fight in his previous matches against Henry Cooper and Doug Jones, he wasn't that impressive. You know, he was inconsistent. He almost lost the fight against Doug Jones. So he didn't have the track record that pointed to Cassius Clay is going to be the next heavyweight champion. And that's why so many riders dismissed this claim from Clay saying, I am the greatest. Now, I think this is also something that we shouldn't overlook about the racial politics of that statement. Mm-hmm. Because when Cassius Clay is saying, I am the greatest before he's heavyweight champion, a lot of white folks, white writers, they dismiss him. He's mm-hmm. a loudmouth braggart. But what do black folks hear in that statement? They hear that a young black man is saying that I, a black man, a proud black man, is the best at something. It's a rejection of white supremacy itself. And we had never really experienced anything like that. We knew what Jesse Owens did in the Olympics in 36, but it was a, some call it a quiet defeat. You know, if you will, we know what Jackie Robinson had did with Major League Baseball. But this was different because you had a brash, brawn, black man telling you and telling all of America, I am the greatest, I'm the best. And then after that, you see his activism also. So this is where we head into, why was he... Why was he so appealing then to the Nation of Islam? Because it was a sort of the same message that they were telling black folks to be proud, to value, to hold the value that you have as a man and a woman in this nation and hold that high. That's a great question. You know, it's interesting. Before Cassius Clay became a prominent member of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, who was the leader of the movement, the supreme minister, the self-proclaimed messenger of Allah, he taught his followers, as did Malcolm X, don't get involved in sports. Boxing is, a, is an enterprise where white men exploit poor working class black and brown men. Don't gamble your income on these boxing matches and the quote unquote games of chance as Elijah Muhammad called them. However, you know what happens here is that Cassius Clay's star brightens in 63 and of course in 64 when he wins the title. And as his relationship deepened with Malcolm X, he could see the future. He could see this was somebody who could create an audience, draw people in, make people listen to him. That was the incredible gift of Cassius Clay outside the ring is even if you didn't take him seriously, you listened to what he had to say. And increasingly what he had to say was political. It expressed the the messages, as you suggest, of black nationalism, of racial pride, of self-determination, independence. He was breaking away from the political boundaries of the sports world. And we also shouldn't forget that when Malcolm X was a young black man, well before he was in the nation of Islam, who was his hero? Joe Lewis. He knew the power in black America of having this heavyweight champion, this idol that black folks looked up to, they they saw as a hero. And so he saw the potential for Cassius Clay to help grow the movement of the nation of Islam. 
And also given at this time, uh, Professor, we should know, too, because especially when their friendship began and Malcolm X and the Nation of, Is- Nation of Islam, there was some tension there, obviously. But now you have this this young, bright, you know, heavyweight champion of the world. How did their relationship, how did their friendship spark here? So it all begins in 1962. At that time, Cassius Clay was in the bottom of the top 10 in the heavyweight division, not a contender for the title. Well, he had been training in Miami, as many people know, under Angelo Dundee. And at that time, when he was in Miami, he started attending these meetings at the local Nation of Islam mosque. And he met one of the members, a man named Sam Saxon. Sam Saxon was a captain in the mosque, which basically meant that he ran the sort of uh, paramilitary defense group in the mosque. Okay, Sam Saxon, Cassius Clay, they developed this friendship. And Saxon invites him to Detroit for this big rally in June of 1962, where Elijah Muhammad was scheduled to speak and Malcolm X was scheduled to speak. Sam Saxon drives from Miami to Louisville, picks up Cassius Clay and his brother Rudy, takes them to Detroit. And when they get to Detroit, they meet Malcolm X in this diner before the big rally. And that's the moment where they shake hands and their lives are about to change in profound ways that neither man can foresee. Cassius Clay went and changed his name to Muhammad Ali, and we heard in that clip that he said this was the name that best fit him. How was was he accepted throughout the Nation of Islam, and was there a perception that changed with him with black America? We might can guess what white America thought, but what about within the black community and then also within the Nation of Islam? Those are good questions. You know what's interesting? After Cassius Clay wins the heavyweight championship, And he makes it very clear that he follows Elijah Muhammad. He's a member of the Nation of Islam. Martin Luther King Jr. came out and made a statement that he was a dangerous role model, that that Clay slash Ali subscribed to an ideology that was opposed to everything that they were fighting for in the integrationist Christian civil rights movement. So there are many African-Americans, including Jackie Robinson, uh, like King, who was critical of, of Cassius Clay joining the Nation of Islam. Jackie Robinson, also a devout Christian. So the old guard, Black Americans, many of them were uneasy with this idea that Clay slash Ali would be using the ring as a stage to recruit uh, African Americans away from the integrationist movement and into this Black nationalist movement. So it's those tensions that you suggested earlier are beginning to pull, and Ali is part of that. Now, inside the Nation of Islam, he is a hero. They've never had a mainstream figure, a celebrity, who is in the movement. So what that does is it gives the Nation of Islam credibility, particularly with uh, urban African Americans. That was the strength, the foothold for the Nation of Islam. Most of their mosques were in urban, working-class Black communities, And of course, Ali was a hero in those communities, and he was a hero inside the mosques in those communities. Well, what can you tell our listeners? Because in the, when we say in the end, but at some point, King, Dr. King and Muhammad Ali, they did have sort of a friendship, correct? Yes, that happens later in the late 60s, when now Muhammad Ali has taken his position against serving in the United States military during the Vietnam War. And if, if our listeners remember, you know, Martin Luther King was one of the first prominent figures to take a stand against the war at great criticism from other civil rights leaders and politicians who thought that he should focus solely on the war. But King's view, of course, was that this war was unjust. 
And that as long as it we're spending millions of dollars every day fighting this unjust, oppressive war in Vietnam, then we're not serving poor black and brown people here in America. Well, he saw in Ali's stand a stand by a righteous man. And so I think by that time, in the late 60s, this is now we've moved into the Black Power era, a lot of Black Power uh, followers, they're not so much concerned about Ali's religious or theological positions. What they see is a man who is speaking truth to power, as we say today, standing up against Uncle Sam, and he's willing to risk it all. And so in that moment, King and Ali, they forge this unity. And in fact, Ali, who was not someone who was involved really in marches and formal protests uh, like King, he actually was participating in an open housing protest in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King was there. And that's where they found some common ground. How do you how do you work together, even if one is an integrationist, one is a black nationalist, to advance the cause of the black freedom struggle, equality and open housing? If you just joining us, I'm in a great conversation with Georgia Tech professor and sports historian Jimmy Smith, who back in 2016, along with Randy Roberts, authored a book, Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And if folks don't know, listen, Ali's stance that he's he sacrificed a lot for that. Not only the heavyweight title, his boxing license was stripped from him. Um, how did Ali make money? How did he survive? <laughs> Oh, boy, it was hard times for him during this period. Uh, as you suggest, he lost about three and a half years of his boxing prime during this period where his case was working through the courts on appeal. He did everything he could. You know, a lot of us probably remember that from the other documentaries we've seen, footage of him giving speeches on college campuses. Mm -hmm. Well, that only got him so far. You know, he was dependent on his boxing career. He appeared in a terrible Broadway play called Buck White. Uh, he tried opening a restaurant that failed. He was struggling. He got loans from other fighters. Joe Frazier loaned him money. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, he is barely holding on. And in fact, this became a point of contention between him and Elijah Muhammad and the ministers of the Nation of Islam because he basically said that if, in fact, there was a boxing promoter out there who would give him a chance to fight, he would do it. Well, Elijah Muhammad saw this as, well, you're willing to do whatever the white man will give you to make money, you know? And so this became a point of contention between them, uh, but Ali needed the money. You know, he had been living off these huge purses from his career, and it was a, a time where he was tested. During this time then, as we move into 1965, uh, just, um couple of months, really less than two months when Malcolm X was assassinated. What was their relationship like? Because at this time, it was very clear there was some tension between Malcolm X and the nation. Yeah. So basically, after Cassius Clay wins the heavyweight championship, Elijah Muhammad renames him Muhammad Ali. The relationship between Ali and Malcolm really is fractured. And the reason for that is that it's the tensions between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad. Mm -hmm. Long story short, Malcolm X says essentially that Elijah Muhammad is not the messenger of Allah. He is not a prophet. He is not divine. And Malcolm wanted to go in a different political direction than Elijah Muhammad. Their political goals were not aligned. And also, Malcolm had this sort of moral crisis. You know, he looked up to Elijah Muhammad as a, as a father figure, as a divine figure. 
But he came to terms with the fact that Elijah Muhammad was carrying on multiple extramarital affairs, had multiple children out of wedlock, and, and those behaviors completely contradicted his teachings. And so it made it, it, Malcolm had a crisis of faith, is the way to put it. And so what happens is that Malcolm leaves the nation of Islam. He moves towards Orthodox Islam, mm-hmm. Sunni Islam. He goes to Mecca and he's, he looks at the world differently, though he remains a black nationalist. That's an important point. Well, when Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad move in different directions, and the Nation of Islam declares that Malcolm X is the enemy for defying Elijah Muhammad, Ali is forced to make a choice. Does he follow Malcolm, his friend and, and quote-unquote brother, or does he remain in the institution, Elijah Muhammad? You know, in the Nation of Islam, people often ask me, well, why did he go to the Nation of Islam? One important reason people have to understand is that, you know, this is a young man who grew up in Jim in the Jim Crow South in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And the Nation of Islam, with its black nationalism, its separatist positions, its own institutions, its own paramilitary wing, its own schools, it provided a sanctuary for young Cassius Clay. You know, it provided him this kind of cover in some ways. You know, young Cassius Clay, well before his Vietnam stand, he wasn't really a confrontational guy. He was not someone who wanted to march or sit in or protest. He was comfortable in the nation because the nation simply wanted him to be a boxer. They wanted to benefit from his fame. But Malcolm was different. Malcolm wanted to engage the front lines of the black freedom struggle, and he wanted Ali to come with him. But Ali wasn't ready to go in that direction yet. What was Muhammad Ali's? Did he issue any public statements? Did he give any interviews after Malcolm was assassinated? Whew, that's a good question. You know, through your research. <laughs> yes, yes. So in 1965, after Malcolm was immediately uh, murdered, Ali's in Chicago for this big rally the Nation of Islam was having for what they call Savior's Day. And Ali did not talk a lot about it in the immediate moment. But I can tell you what he did on the day of the funeral. He was giving a boxing exhibition with his brother. He's in the ring. Mm -hmm. He's joking. He's laughing. He doesn't appear somber or sad. And the reporters who watched this really struggled to reconcile. The Cassius Clay, who was affectionate, praised Malcolm and for what he taught him, that he had believed in him and, and so on. And here he was on the day of the funeral. You know, you don't see him expressing this deep sadness. Now, maybe in his private moments, he did. But publicly, the Ali that that Americans saw was one that was vindictive and vengeful and continued to say things like, essentially, Malcolm X got what he deserved, that he had crossed Elijah Muhammad. Anyone who crosses Elijah Muhammad must pay the price. And so it's difficult, I think, for people to really um, see this Muhammad Ali today on screen in the Netflix documentary. We're used to thinking about him as this heroic figure. But in 1965, most Americans did not see Muhammad Ali as a hero. In your book that you and Randy Roberts co-authored back in 2016, did you speak to everybody you wanted to speak to? And if not, who did you want to get that was alive that you couldn't? Oh, that's a good question. There were a lot of people we wanted to talk to. You know, I think some people who are still around, particularly in the Nation of Islam, uh, had a hard time letting their guard down with people who were asking questions about this relationship. But I have a great story. 
Captain Sam, who I talked about at the top of the hour, the, the gentleman who recruited Cassius Clay into the Miami Mosque in 1961, the Malcolm X. I told Randy, so we've got to find Captain Sam. I know he's alive. I just don't know where he is. So we're trying to find him because we feel like he can unlock the door to some stories that haven't been told before. Well, I was at the Atlanta airport getting ready to go to Detroit. And I'm sitting there and I see an older African-American gentleman in a wheelchair with a big shiny ring on his hand. It says Ali on it. Mm -hmm. Take a second look. And I think to myself, I think I know who that is. I walk up to this older gentleman and say, excuse me, sir, my name's Johnny Smith. I'm a professor at Georgia Tech. I'm writing a book about Muhammad Ali and I've been looking all over for you. And there he is, Abdul Rahman, his, his Muslim name, says to me, well, that's what we call, they call divine intervention, my brother. And there in that moment, we have a good laugh. We set up an interview and at point of fact, he lived here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. He's passed away since then, but we sat down together. We had an interview and he told me about his relationship with young Cassius Clay in Miami, uh, Malcolm X being in young Clay's life, what it was like being in the Nation of Islam at that time. So it was a key interview. The one interview that people will see in a Netflix documentary that we couldn't get, that I think is particularly powerful, is Muhammad Ali's brother, Rahman mm -hmm. Ali. You know, he talks about what his brother felt for Malcolm X, and you really feel the love, but you also feel when Rahman says that Malcolm X shouldn't have betrayed Elijah Muhammad. So I think you get an intimacy in the documentary that no book could bring uh, to life in the way that you can feel it on screen. Professor, as we wrap up, is there something that you think people get wrong about their relationship with Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali? Yes. I think a lot of times people have been led to believe that the moment that Elijah Muhammad renamed the heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, that Ali cut Malcolm out of his life. But we discovered that's not true. Ali and Malcolm actually engaged each other a few times in New York City. The last time they saw each other, and we retell this story in the book and in the documentary, was actually in Ghana, in Accra, Ghana. Both Malcolm and Ali were crisscrossing Africa at that time, and their paths crossed at random. They were supposed to have gone to Africa together, but after the relationship frayed, they did not have the same itinerary. Well. Long story short, Malcolm thinks that when he spots Ali coming out of the Ambassador Hotel, they're going to hug and embrace as brothers. In fact, when we read Malcolm's diary, he described Ali as his brother, as his friend. He had still warm feelings for him. Well, when Ali sees Malcolm outside the hotel in Accra, he's cold as ice. He tells Malcolm, you crossed Elijah Muhammad. That was the wrong thing to do. But what people miss is that in that moment, the man who's standing right behind Muhammad Ali is Elijah Muhammad's son, Herbert Muhammad. Herbert Muhammad acted as the eyes and ears for Elijah Muhammad, which made it impossible for Muhammad mm. Ali to openly embrace Malcolm X in that final encounter in Ghana. Mm. Georgia Tech professor and sports historian Johnny Smith, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Your documentary, the one that starts in about a week or so with Ken Burns, Muhammad Ali, still polarizing figure. We're still learning so much more about this man. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can catch up on all these programs at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, weeknights at 7 p.m. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Join us tonight, 6 p.m.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 